You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series, The Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, the way of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be in verses 20 through 26 today as we continue to work our way through this series. Jesus is opening our eyes to what it is to be a citizen of his kingdom. This is early in Jesus' ministry, but he has already communicated that he is coming to establish his kingdom. He's already proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in his earthly ministry. And so this is the first known sermon we have of for Jesus where he's letting his disciples know what it looks like to actually follow him. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How do you identify a follower of Jesus? How does a follower of Jesus live differently from others in this world? So previously, we've talked about kingdom joy. We've talked about kingdom mission. We've talked about kingdom scripture and what is our relationship like with the law and the Old Testament. Jesus is going to further expound on that specifically today as he looks at one specific law in the Old Testament and then expounds on it for us as far as how we are to deal with it. But the, the bigger picture, the bigger question that Jesus is answering today is what does it look like to be righteous? To live in a way that's right, to be in a way that is right, to live the way that God has designed us to live. What does kingdom righteousness look like? If you were to ask different people, potentially even different people in this room, what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be good? My guess is we will give different answers depending on our perspectives and our experiences and the ways we've been taught and the ways that we have been raised. Jesus, in this sermon today and in the following sermons as we work our way through chapter 5, is going to give us further clarity on how do we live in the righteousness of the kingdom of God? What does that righteousness look like? What is it to be good. Last week, we ended on verse 20 in Matthew chapter 5. I want to revisit verse 20. It's a very pivotal verse in this sermon by Jesus. It's actually the verse that kind of launches us into the rest of the sermon, as in many ways, the rest of the sermon, Jesus is helping us to answer this very question that is raised in our minds from verse 20. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees would likely have been the most highly esteemed righteousness in all of Israel. I mean, the Pharisees, the the, the amount of Bible and scripture that they had memorized was unbelievable. History tells us that in order to be a Pharisee, you had to have memorized the entire Torah. That's what they call the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some of y'all don't even mess with Leviticus like that. Leave alone, memorize. Just don't even read through Leviticus because of all the laws. They had this memorized. Hear this by the time they were 12, the Pharisees did. Genesis alone has 50 chapters in it. 50 chapters. Chapters, the the Pharisees would have had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized. They were known for their righteousness. They were known for their fasting, for their public and elaborate prayers that they would have. They were known for their not only their knowledge and understanding of God's law, but for their strict adherence to the details of God's law as well. 
They were those that you would look at and think, man, I don't know how anyone could, could follow God more than they do. And Jesus told them, his disciples there and those, the crowds that were surrounding him at this point, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom of God. Part of the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes' righteousness is that it was only a surface level righteousness. It was a righteousness that looked good on the outside, but wasn't rooted in a heart that truly loved God. In fact, later on in this book, Jesus tells them very clearly about their righteousness. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 27 through 28, it reads, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus has given us further clarity on why our righteousness must be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They practice this this superficial and hypocritical righteousness. They wanted status, they wanted power and esteem of others, so they they lived in such a way that seemed so holy that they would be able to attain the things that they desired, but the thing that they desired wasn't actually God. They wanted to appear as if they truly followed God because they wanted some of the perks that came along with that. There's a word in there somewhere, but I don't have time to preach that sermon today. They did all the things that looked righteous and holy, but they didn't really love God. You can tell this by the fact that they, quote unquote, loved the law, but they wanted to kill God in the flesh, the one who gave them the law. So for the next several verses, Jesus exposes a commandment from the Old Testament to help us have a better view on this, that at the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees understood on a superficial level. He's going to bring out one specific command from the Old Testament that they understood very superficially, and he's going to press it a lot deeper into them and let them know that this superficial understanding of this command is not sufficient. It's not enough. It's not the kind of righteousness that I am calling you to. He's going to press them to a deeper, truer understanding of the heart and the spirit of the law that he expounds on. And he starts that in verse 21 as he deals with the command to not murder. Matthew 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he starts with one of the laws in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. You shouldn't sinfully kill someone. And if you do, you'll be liable to judgment. You are subject to punishment is what that means. Now, the word there for judgment can also be translated court or justice. This is a word that was often used to refer to the Sanhedrin, which to some degree was like a, was like a supreme court for them. So Jesus' point is, you you already know that you shouldn't commit murder, and if so, you'll be liable to some type of judgment and be convicted for your crime. But remember, Jesus is getting to the heart of these commands, not just the the superficial external action. He's trying to press them and push to the heart of the command. So then we need to understand what murder is at its core. At its core, murder is saying, you are worthless to me. It's rooted in the belief that I would be better or this world would be better if you weren't here. 
It is ultimately, I'm done with you. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And it's taking that thought to its most severe and extreme conclusion. But that's what's lying and lurking underneath. It's the most intense form of relational destruction. It's the most extreme form of disregarding the fact that someone is truly an image bearer of God. It is the most extreme action that one takes when they don't see and acknowledge the value of someone, the good in someone, and the glory of God on someone that is made in God's image. That's what's underneath the external act. So Jesus said there in verse 21, you'll be liable to judgment if you murder someone. Nothing controversial there. But then he ratchets it up and presses it a little bit deeper in verse 22. Let's follow with Jesus, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he goes on to say, also, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. Same consequence that he just attached to murder. He's saying it's not just the act of murder that is a sin, but you can also have sinful anger in your heart as well. I just said that the root of murder is the ultimate relational destruction and the most severe refusal to have anything to do with anyone. And if you really think about it, that's often what anger does to us also, even if we don't always show it in very explicit ways. Oftentimes, if we're extremely angry with someone, we want nothing to do with them. We either lash out at them or we respond in a more subtle way and we're just a little passive aggressive. Maybe we give them the cold shoulder. Maybe we're just intentionally very short with them whether it's lashing out and very overt or whether it's more hidden and covert through through passive aggressiveness, it's still causing that separation and that relational destruction. It's still treating them as if they are less than an image bearer of God. It's still disregarding the true value that they have. It's still expressing, I don't want anything to do with you. That's what's at the heart of it. And then Jesus ratchets it up even more, and presses it even deeper as we continue on in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, the English translation that translates this word as insult, that, that, that word probably falls a little bit short of the full meaning of this, heat, of this Greek word, excuse me, that's behind this. The Greek word there is, means to call someone empty-headed, to, to, to call them or consider them to be good for nothing, to consider them to be useless. It's what you might do if someone says something to you that makes you think that they are just a waste of space. Maybe they say something so ignorant. Maybe they say something so problematic and destructive that you would rather just be done with them or maybe to use phrasing from today to that they are now dead to you. It's what you might say when someone says something that's, ex- that's incredibly ignorant and problematic that you begin to feel like this person is absolutely good for nothing. I notice this the most in my life when I see somebody or hear somebody, or maybe it's a, even a post on social media, and someone says something, whether it's, it's political or whether it's about some issue of justice, and I find it to be so problematic and so damaging that I'm just like, I wish you were not here. I wish I never had to deal with you because of the thing that you are saying. That's why I see this the most in my life. I just get furious. What you're doing is so harmful. I'm just done with you. I think in many ways, 
Cancel culture in our society today finds its roots in this Greek word that's translated here, insult. Where I'm just, you're good for nothing at all. I am done with you. It's easy for us to give ourselves a pass for insulting others in this way because, well, it's not like I'm killing anyone. It's not that bad. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he wants to rob you of that type of justification of superficial and hypocritical righteousness. He wants to take that away from you, that phrase, well, I'm not not killing anybody. He wants you to stop using that to justify sinful anger that is in your heart. That's what Jesus is doing with this passage. He wants to rid you of justifying superficial and hypocritical righteousness. And he continues to do this with the last part of verse 22. It says, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is, is ratcheting up the consequences that he is saying that whoever commits these are liable for. Now, I believe Jesus is speaking very figuratively. This term, you fool, is the same word that Paul uses a couple times. He uses it in the book of Titus and the book of 2 Timothy to describe foolish conversations and ideas that should be avoided and disregarded. So Paul is using this term to, to refer to uh, even controversies when he's telling Titus and he's telling Timothy, hey, don't even give this any of your time. This is a waste of your time. And Jesus says that when we approach others in that way, that there is sin that is lurking in our hearts. There is sinful anger that moves in our hearts and we can see it in our, we can see it in our anger in ways that we're often dismissive of people. This is what you would do with someone that is, is this Greek word for fool. You would just dismiss them. It's like, I don't, I don't have anything. You don't have anything to say that could possibly benefit me or anything else. You need to just be quiet and not say anything. I, I completely dismiss you and all of your thoughts. Calling someone a fool is not nearly as extreme as murdering someone. In fact, this term for fool is likely not something that someone would have been punished for in Jesus' day. But Jesus is showing us that if you want true righteousness, the righteousness of his kingdom, it starts with what's in your heart. It's not just what you do. Jesus wants our righteousness, again, to be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't just want us to have this superficial righteousness. He wants us to have a righteousness that is internal, that is in our hearts, as well as external in our actions. So he's not content to just have us have an understanding of the fact that the external action of murder is wrong. He also wants us to know that the anger in our hearts that is sinful, that leads us to act in a way that is unloving to those around us, is also wrong that we should seek to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, rid ourselves of the sinful anger that makes us want to rid ourselves of others who we might find to be foolish. Jesus is not content only to deal with the fruit of the sin in our lives. No, he wants to deal with the root of the sin in our lives as well because he's saying through this sermon, through this passage, that the root matters also. I think one could even make the case that Jesus is saying that the root in some instances actually matters more. He doesn't want us to have a superficial and hypocritical righteousness as the Pharisees and the scribes have. And one of the most problematic things in the body of Christ 
It's when we let this rejection and, and this dismissal and refusal to acknowledge the image of God on someone, one of the problematic things that happens when we let that run rampant in our hearts is it causes so much division in the body of Christ. We talked about, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago, that we are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. There would be a city on a hill, this community that is showing off his light, that is showing off who he is, not, not individually, but collectively. And when we let this anger run rampant in our hearts, it causes division in the body of Christ. It prevents us from living out our truest identity as the salt of the earth, as the light of the world, as a city on a hill, as Jesus says. And so Jesus confronts the issue of division in the body of Christ head on in the next few verses, starting in verse 23. Words that would have been shocking to his audience at that time. Verse 23 reads, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. More on that in a second. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, in verses 25 and 26 there, Jesus brings up some natural consequences that they might find in their time if their brother has something against them. If they have wronged their brother and their brother is taking them to court, he brings up some even natural consequences and judgments that they'll have to face if that's the case. But I want to focus in on verses 23 and 24, where Jesus basically says, if, if you have come into the temple to worship me and you have a gift with you, Maybe it's something that you want to offer as a sacrifice to God and you're bringing there with you. And it comes to mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. It comes to your mind that your brother or your sister has something against you, meaning you have sinned against them. Now there is some amount of division in the body of Christ that you have not done everything you can do to deal with. He says, stop what you're doing. Put that gift down there in front of the altar. Go find your brother and sister. Be reconciled to them. Make it right. And then come back, pick up your gift and continue in your worship. He's saying, stop this external act of worship that you're doing because it's a facade. Because it's superficial and hypocritical and artificial worship. If you are coming to me as if you are to worship me when you are allowing division to wreak havoc within my body. I believe Jesus is showing us that if we come claiming we want to worship God, but we aren't willing to fight against and seek to uproot division in the body of Christ, that it is not true worship that we desire. It is not true worship that we are after. We may want to seem as if we are truly after the heart of God and worshiping him, but if we are truly after his heart, we will fight against division in the body. We will fight for reconciliation with our brother and with our sister. He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and make it right. You know how many churches come together for corporate worship and they're doing many outward signs of worship as they sing or maybe lift their hands. Maybe they bow their heads and partake in, in communion together. And those things look great on the surface, but all the while there is, there is division in the body of Christ and no one's doing anything about it. No one's fighting against it. No one's pursuing reconciliation with their brother and sister. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand true worship. You practice a superficial, hypocritical worship. 
Because when we deny the reality that someone is made in the image of God and treat them differently because we truly believe that we can look down on them, that's not just making a statement about how we view them, it's making a statement about how we view God because he's the one who made them in his image. It's his image that, are, that is on them that you are rejecting. And thus, I believe we can see from this passage that God believes we are rejecting him. And so if we come together to worship God, but we aren't truly coming together because we're not reconciled, it is not the heart of God that we are truly after in our corporate worship. And I want to be very, very clear about this next statement that I'm going to make. If history is any indication at all, there is some of that happening right now in Midtown Tunash, likely in this very room. Likely with some of us who are, who are members of our church that are joining us online. That there is division, that there is anger that has not been dealt with, that there are offenses that have been made that have not, and we have not done all that we can to pursue peace with one another. And if that's the case, if that is you, maybe what you need to do right now is send a text message. Maybe you, you need to put a reminder in your phone that you need to reach out to this person. But this is Jesus is pressing us on this and saying, hey, you're not actually worshiping me in a deep and true way. You're worshiping me in a superficial, hyper, uh, hypocritical way, excuse me, if you are not pursuing reconciliation with your brother and your sister. My guess is there needs to be conversations after this worship service. If you're watching this online, some of you need to hit pause right now. I promise the sermon will still be up. We will put it online and you need to reach out to someone and pursue reconciliation with them. Jesus told them, no, no, stop with your gift. Stop with the sacrifice that you're about to make. Put it down. Go make things right and then come back and worship me the way that you should. So it's not superficial. Some of us have been passive aggressive with people in our church or maybe in your life group because you're just tired of them and you need to make it right with them. Some of us have been intentional, intentionally short with people in our church or in our life group because they did or said something and we didn't like. Oh, here's the thing. Maybe they actually wronged you. Maybe they actually wronged you and you've never had a conversation about it. You've never tried to pursue peace and reconciliation, which means now you're also in the wrong and now you need to go make it right. Maybe you've been holding them at arm's length instead of actually pursuing true biblical fellowship and biblical community with them, and you need to go make it right. Jesus is pressing us on this. For some of us, because we have a diverse church, you're in fellowship with people that disagree with you, people who have different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives than you, people who have different political affiliations than you. And maybe that's caused you to keep some people in our church at a distance because of the difficulty and the pain of the conversation. So you've been very passive about actually pursuing reconciliation with them. And you need to go to them and confess your sin of passivity and confess your sin of keeping them at arm's length and apologize and ask them for their forgiveness and seek to make it right with them. We must not let anger rule us. I believe for most of us Christians in the room here, when we're experiencing sinful anger, we probably don't lash out. We probably more just subtly create some distance. To subtly not pursue unity in the faith as the Holy Spirit would lead us to do. We need to stop practicing this superficial, hypocritical, fake righteousness and this fake worship and actually seek God from the depths of our hearts, including responding to our anger in the way that he tells us to. 
Some of us have essentially insulted our brother or sister by considering them to be useless and worthless and have called them fools by the way that we ignore them and respond to them as if they don't bear the very image of God himself and as if they have nothing of value to add to our lives. And Jesus is saying to you today, I just want to reread verses 21 through 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with this brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus wants us to deal with what's really going on in our hearts and not have our relationship with him just be a show. Just be a facade. Just be something where we know how to say the right things and play the game and smile at everyone and tell everybody that we're blessed and highly favored and just continue on about our lives. He's like, no, I want to press you on your heart. What's going on inside of you? And for some of you, that means you need to reach out to someone in our church. For some of you, that means you need to reach out to people that aren't in our church. Some of you, you need to reach out to the people in the church that you left to come to Midtown Two Notch. For some of you who are at Midtown Two Notch because you left the church because someone made you upset and you never did anything to make it right with them, you never reconciled with them, those are the people that you need to go and contact after this service is over. A very common practice in church life today As I'm in fellowship, I'm in communion with the church, everything's going great, and then someone does something and offends me, and because we have no practice at all in in what is necessary to have sustained, deep relationships, we always run. We run from unity because we don't understand how to actually practical put into place the steps that are necessary for unity. And some of you here, some practical steps for you. You need to reach out, you need to be very intentional and stop putting it off. Admit that you were wrong. Ask for forgiveness, hear their heart, hear where they're coming from, and try to make it right. It pains me to know, it pains me so much because the church has so much potential. If we're able to stay united, we can serve in so many great ways. But one of the problems and one of the difficulties that many pastors face in the church today is that as soon as someone actually gets bought in, someone offends them, they don't deal with it, there's no reconciliation, division comes and they end up leaving instead of continuing to serve and build with the church that is there. So it's hard for churches to gain momentum. It's hard for churches to continue to grow because as soon as someone gets to a point where they can lead or serve in some ongoing way, because we don't practice reconciliation, we leave. We bounce and we go to another church. And my guess is that there are some who are members of our church now who left another church because of those problems and are here. And at some point, the same thing is going to happen here. And at some point, we as followers of Jesus must learn that we deal with problems. We deal with division. We deal with our anger. We apologize where we need to. We leave our gift at the altar and go and be reconciled with our brother and with our sister because we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, Jesus says. Jesus is saying, I know you know that murder and violence are wrong, but you But do you recognize that the people or the person you are angry with are image bearers of God just like you? Just like you are. If they're a fellow Christian, do you recognize that they're also part of of his body and Christ wants you to no longer see them as a good-for-nothing fool that you should ignore and dismiss? 
Because he wants you to see them as a brother. He wants you to see them as a sister in him. They are an image bearer of God that he put on flesh for, that he lived a perfectly righteous life for, that he suffered for, that he died for, that he was raised from the grave for, that he sent his Holy Spirit for, and that he promised to return for, to bring him home, to be with him forever. Which lets us know that our brother or our sister, for us to see them as good for nothing or for us to dismiss them as a fool, doesn't line up with God and his view of us or his view for any of his people. They are a beloved, valued, treasured child of God that you should seek to be reconciled with. And one of the things I think we have to bear in mind if we're actually going to live this out is to remember that in perspective and when compared or when contrasted with God, we're all the fools, right? We're all the ones who should have been dismissed, right? We're all the, we are the ones that should have been separated from him, but because of his love, his enduring and faithful love, he continued to pursue each and every one of us if we are in him. This is the kind of love of our father. This is the kind of love of the son that has been shared with us. One that does what is necessary to reconcile us back to him. Reconciliation is never easy, and we see that on the cross of Jesus where it costed him his life. We know reconciling love. We have experienced a pursuing, faithful, reconciling love. And as we are to be the light of the world, we reflect that same love out into the world and also to other believers and other followers of Jesus who have sinned against us and whom we have sinned against. Let us follow our Savior. Let us truly be followers of Jesus because in his kingdom, we reconcile with each other. There are some of us who know, who've been around our church for a while. You know at our family meetings, we have a time of reconciling with each other. We put a little bit of music on right before we do communion. And we give you an opportunity to encourage and be reconciled with anyone in the room. And some of you, you wait. You wait months you don't go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and you come and we worship together corporately over and over and over again and you wait for months for that time before you go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and Jesus is saying, don't, don't come to me with this superficial righteousness. But he is calling us to offer our whole hearts to him and he forgives us and remains united with us even when we don't. My encouragement to us is don't put it off. Send the text, make the phone call, set up the meeting, be a peacemaker, be reconciled with your brother and sister in Christ so that we can continue to collectively be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world that he has created us to be as he transforms us from the inside out. Family, let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for your word that is honest with us it's a sword. It cuts us, Father. Thank you for not letting us settle for just a, a superficial and hypocritical and artificial righteousness or, or a surface level worship. Thank you for pressing us to be whom you have called us to be. Father, give us courage. Give us strength. Give us humility. Some of us, we need to have conversations. Some of us, there's people's names that you've already put on our minds and put on our hearts. Father, don't give us any rest until we do what we need to do, until we, make, we set up a conversation or a meeting to go and be reconciled with our brother or with our sister. Father, give us the grace and the strength and the patience to endure these difficult, awkward, and challenging conversations that we need to have. 
Father, help us to not in our anger be dismissive of our brothers, of our sisters. Help us to not consider them to be fools. Help us to not see them as good for nothing. Help us to see them the way that you do, as loved, cherished, valued children of God. Help us to live more and more as the people you have created us to be. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.